0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com
1: Hello, I'm Natasha Froze and this is Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three of the writers from the magazine to read their pieces aloud. Coming up on this week's show, Fraser Nelson on why Emirati ownership of The Spectator matters, Robert Hardman on the day the king could have killed Rishi, and Michael Simmons on why sobriety isn't worth it. First up, Fraser Nelson.
2: George Osborne was originally down to fill this diary slot. Now, we as the spectator were always rather mean to him when he was chancellor, and deservedly so, by the way, but it pains me to admit what a good diary writer he is. He's always stylish, always engaging, and always ready to spill some beans. His diaries have been some of the best we've ran, so he agreed when we asked him, but then suddenly he pulled out, leaving us scrambling. Something has come up, he said, but what could it be? The next day's papers then brought the news. He's been hired to advise Emirates in their bid to buy this magazine and the Daily Telegraph. To write for The Spectator and to sell The Spectator might have been a bit much, even for this famously adept multitasker. So we had an empty page to fill. What to do? The editor, in these cases, always steps in. So here I am. Now, I'd love to know what advice George Osborne is actually giving the UAE. They stand to be the first government in the world to buy a national newspaper in another country, so this is a test case. Lucy Fraser, the Culture Secretary, is considering what to do. Now, until now, sovereign wealth funds of foreign governments have been allowed to buy airports, shopping centres, even football clubs, but to buy newspapers even through a sort of vehicle like Redbird IMI, does raise certain sensitivities. At least it does if you think a free press is important. Now, the problem isn't really foreign ownership. Many of Britain's great newspapers have thrived under Australian, American, Canadian, and, with the FT nowadays, Japanese control. But for a foreign government to be a proprietor? Now that is something absolutely new. Newspapers and magazines aren't, of course, like trains or shopping centres. They're a vital part of our democratic apparatus. The British tradition has always been that of a free press, and, and by free, we mean freedom from government interference. Now, how do you reconcile this principle of press freedom with governments actually owning publications? One of the mooted solutions is to set up a board of independent directors who would, at least in theory, act as a fireguard by protecting the editor. Results of this vary when it's been tried. Just ask Rupert Murdoch. He was asked to set up such a board when he bought The Times in 1981, apparently to limit his influence. But when the editorial board refused to approve his change of editors in 2013, he made them acting editors instead. Problem solved. Now, in Poland, the director of TVP World is technically protected by an editorial board, but he has just been sacked to the board's fury. He keeps the title editor, so technically it's all legit. Anyway, you get the idea about these boards. Now, the other solution, of course, is one that happened to Frank Giles when he was sacked as editor of Sunday Times in 1983. His title was changed to editor emeritus as he served out the rest of his contract. Legend has it that the mild-mannered Giles asked Rupert Murdoch what on earth this new title meant. It's Latin, came the reply. E means exit. Meritus means you've earned it. I've already met Jeff Zucker, the American to whom I'd report as editor. He strikes me as decent, professional, respectful of a spectator's traditions, and absolutely not the type to take editorial orders from the Emiratis. As editor, I certainly wouldn't enact these orders, but here's the problem. Either of us could be replaced in two shakes of a camel's tail. And protection based on two personalities is, of course, no protection at all. So how on earth do you resolve this? How to guarantee editorial independence in the scenario of de facto Emirati government ownership? I'm afraid I've got no idea at all. Perhaps George Osborne does. If so, he'd be very welcome to take his diary slot again next week. Time was, of course, when Tory MPs were so opposed to sovereign wealth funds that they refused even to drink in the cocktail bar or the Corinthia Hotel because it was, as its name suggests, financed by Libya. When Colonel Gaddafi was eventually deposed, they all rushed in and it became a bit of a Tory haunt. And good hunting grounds for journalists, because drinks there were so expensive that politicians needed somebody else to pick up the tab. But even journalists struggled to get a whole evening there on expenses. One number 10 aide would line up journalists drinking sponsors in 90-minute slots. Now, the teetotal Rishi Sunak was never so corruptible. His social invitations tended to involve 7am spin exercise classes. But in his sobriety, the Prime Minister is perhaps in tune, as our cover story suggests, with much of modern Britain. When Svetlana Morinets arrived here as a refugee from Ukraine, she knew absolutely nobody. She'd been a journalist in Kiev, an award-winning one, but a Job Centre advisor told her that immigrants in Britain just don't become journalists. They told her she should look for cleaning work instead. But undaunted, she applied for the Spectator's anonymised internship scheme. She got through, and she's been with us ever since. She reported from the front line in Ukraine last year and exposed a scandal in medical aid for wounded soldiers. This week she was nominated in the UK Press Awards for Young Journalist of the Year. So whatever happens on the night to end up in such company from such an improbable starting place really is quite the achievement. Slavas Villana.
1: That was Fraser Nelson. Next, Robert Hardman.
0: We are familiar with the perfectly sensible convention that monarchs should not fly with their heirs. But should they also be discouraged from foraging for their prime ministers? While researching my new book and film on the King, I was at Balmoral to see the visit of the Sunaks. At one point, the King vanished into the grounds of Burke Hall to pick mushrooms for his guests, who also included Sir Nicholas and Lady Coleridge. It's a favourite form of royal relaxation. The King was picking Burke Hall mushrooms on the day the Queen died. When I mentioned this to a Privy Councillor last week, he was troubled. He pointed to the ghastly tale of Nicholas Evans. The late author of The Horse Whisperer, who also went picking mushrooms in the Highlands a few years ago, plucked the wrong sort and four people ended up fighting for their lives. Just think, one mistake and we could have lost the king, the queen, the prime minister and the provost of Eton at a single sitting, he said. Fortunately, the king knows his onions and his mushrooms too. This week's accession of Frederick X of Denmark was particularly interesting, given our own recent experience. Sunday's event was similar and yet so different. There was genuine public love for the great Margaret II, as there was for Elizabeth II. But she is very much still with us, so the mood was not mournful. She had simply decided to abdicate at the age of eighty three having always said, to me and to others, that she never would. It made the exercise feel more functional and secular, which it was, rather than something spiritual. Frederick wore no crown. Though Denmark has one, it only comes out at a monarch's funeral. Understandably, no one was keen to see it. Actual crownings are vanishingly rare, Though Charles III did see one as Prince of Wales in 1997, the coronation of King Letsy III of Lesotho. It was held in the baking heat of the National Football Stadium and went on for more than four hours. Don't worry, the prince told us on the plane afterwards when someone asked if he had been taking notes. I'll keep it short. And so he did. It transpires his officials joined forces with Lambeth Palace and spent a whole evening going through every frame of 1953 over a TV dinner of, what else, coronation chicken. They got it down to below two hours. The future King William wants to go further. His target? An hour and ten minutes. Coronations remain under the aegis of the Earl Marshal, as do state funerals. The former allow for plenty of planning. The latter, clearly, are in the hands of the Almighty. The success of Operation London Bridge owed much to the diligence of the present Duke of Norfolk. Whereas his father's plans had not extended beyond five sides of foolscap and an unshakable belief, having led the guards over the Rhine in 1945, that all would be well, the 18th Duke took a different approach. Eddie Norfolk had been drafting and redrafting plans ever since inheriting in 2002. As he put it to me, it was like constantly revising for a physics A-level but never knowing when the exam was going to be. History has awarded him an A-star. His father, Miles Norfolk, did make one important decision, however. He felt the monarch's funeral operation needed a name. Looking around for inspiration he spotted a painting of London Bridge. Every member of the royal family now has a bridge designation. The Queen's former comptroller, Sir Malcolm Ross, came up with a brilliant one for Margaret Thatcher. He proposed Operation Iron Bridge until a humourless police chief intervened. Only royals get bridges, Ross was told. I am surprised by the lack of fanfare for next Monday's big anniversary, the centenary of Britain's first Labour Prime Minister. In his superb new book, The Wild Men, Dr David Torrance reminds us that Ramsay MacDonald and his colleagues had one great fear about the King as they tried to craft a government. That the King was afraid of them. Twice, the Welsh trade unionist, Jimmy Thomas, sought reassurances from the King's private secretary, Lord Stamfordham. On New Year's Day, 1924, he even turned up at Windsor to ask, point-blank, if the King was alarmed at the prospect of a Labour government. Stamfordham assured Thomas that the King never doubted their patriotism or loyalty. In the end, of course, George V was close to tears in 1935, when Macdonald retired, telling him, you've been the Prime Minister I liked best. Another big anniversary looms this year. I have been on the French coast this week, ahead of 80th commemorations of D-Day, to inspect work on the new Winston Churchill Education Centre for the magnificent Normandy Memorial at Vère-sur-Mer. Overlooking Gold Beach, it looks as if it has been here for years. In fact, It's virtually new. Every other allied nation had long had a memorial here, but shamefully, there was nothing for the 22,442 who fell in the summer of 1944, serving king and country. Then a handful of veterans approached Nick Witchell, the BBC royal correspondent, who has driven the project from drawing board to building site to great monument. He is about to retire from the BBC after 47 years, but he intends to spend even more time ensuring that this sacred spot is secure and solvent long after the last veterans have gone. Nick has had his scoops and his moments on camera over the years. Few journalists, though, have righted a great national wrong on this scale and in their own time.
1: That was Robert Hardman. And finally, Michael Simmons.
3: Absolutely nobody feels better at the end of dry January. Mornings are still a struggle, you're as tired as ever, and if anything, the neurotic voice in your head is even louder. Yes, you may have gone to the gym every Sunday, but how has your life improved? It hasn't. My own dry January was forced on me by antibiotics. Though the NHS guidelines said the pills are alcohol compatible, my doctor, who has a record of my alcohol intake, took the liberty of writing no alcohol followed by five exclamation marks. This has allowed me to experience sobriety firsthand. The main findings from my time on the wagon were pretty depressing. The low level of simmering anxiety that starts when you take your first tentative steps into the pub and subsides approximately a quarter of the way into your first pint just persists for the entirety of a sober night. You don't need booze to have fun, but it certainly helps. Sobriety is an unhappy and anxious inducing state, but even so, the Puritans are winning. This month, more people seem to be going sober than ever. 200,000 is Alcohol Change UK's target. Most of my friends have swapped the bottle for some over sugared Elderflower cordial. A mate's tech company opted for a spinning class instead of a Christmas party, and worryingly, for those of us not joining in, none of them seems to be cracking under peer pressure. One Alcohol Charity offers a toolkit for how to succeed as someone newly sober in the corporate world. The tips include, before a work event or party, let the organisers know you don't drink. So can we soon expect alcohol-free to appear in our colleagues' email signatures right next to he-him? Later, the toolkit recommends sharing non-alcoholic drink recommendations with colleagues to help boost your self-esteem. These non-alcoholic drinks are getting weirder too if my local supermarket is anything to go by. If it isn't elderflower based, then there's a whole range of CBD, cannabis, drinks. The latter seem particularly popular with the newly tea total brigade, which is odd given that most people don't associate cannabis with sobriety. Drinking has become a battleground in the culture wars. Over Christmas, the organisers of a community bonfire night were criticised for encouraging firework watchers to gather in a pub after the event. This excluded people, according to the complainant. Other members of the booze police joined in and called for community groups not to use venues that serve alcohol at all. Goodbye, pub Britain. I wouldn't argue that problem drinking should go unaddressed. Alcohol deaths in the UK hit a record high in 2022, the last year we have complete figures for So recognising when one has a genuine problem and cutting back is to be lauded, quietly. It's the people whose personality becomes defined by not drinking who get my goat. These reverse pub bores can be split into three types. The healthy drug addict, who seems to engage in every vice but considers themselves a fitness freak because they would never touch a pale ale. The sober chronicler, who, presumably because being sober is so bloody boring, takes great joy in recording every embarrassing thing said or done on a night out so that the next day they can regale their friends in their most anxious state. And then there are the creeps, the ones who have never drunk because they don't like being out of control. It's as if they know a psychopathic monster lurks beneath their sober self just waiting to be unleashed by Bacardi and Coke. Being alcohol-free is just the latest in an increasingly long list of possible identities. It now seems compulsory for those of us in our 20s and 30s to identify our problems, and then announce to the world we'll be addressing them. But abstinence could be doing more harm than good. Countless studies warn of the mental afflictions facing the youth of today. Poor resilience and impossible-to-meet lifestyle goals equal a whole load of stress. Might we all be a bit happier if we restricted
1: ourselves less
3: and just had a drink?
1: That was Michael Simmons. And that's it for today. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not pick up a copy of our magazine? I'm Natasha Froze, and do join us again next week.